And at that time, I was reading a book called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller, a great book. And in that book, it talks about how the company is not the hero. The client is the hero. The company is a trusted guide, right? So we have the back of the hero. We are a guide that has a proven process to get the hero to a desired outcome. So Tyler, my co-founder and I of Sidekick, we're sitting around uh, saying, well, who has the back of a hero? And we said, a sidekick. So we started kicking around the idea of franchise sidekick. We loved it. It was born. And now our vision is to help people reduce their risk when buying a franchise. And we think the brand just fits perfectly. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. We are on a mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs just like you take action through franchise ownership. Allowing you to obtain more financial freedom, time with family, and ultimately a business that can run on its own without you. Welcome to the Franchise Founders Podcast. I'm really excited about this episode. I'll give you a quick summary of what we'll be getting into today. Me and Ryan Zink, the co-founder of Franchise Sidekick, previous founder of Franchise Fastlane, Complete Nutrition, and a bunch of brands and businesses. We get into all kinds of things related to culture, vision, team building, recruiting, how to build a team that can grow and how you can inspire your team to grow within your organization. We talk about even how to pick brands and how to pick people. I took the conversation maybe down a lot of tangents as I normally do, but we got into a ton of great broad information as well as granular to the point actionable advice that you can take into your franchise system or into your franchise research Enjoy the episode. Very excited to have our guest on today. It's a solo episode as far as your host or co-host Dan Claps with one of my favorite people in franchising, Ryan Zink. And his name, most of us in franchising have heard it. If you haven't, give you a quick background. Just tremendously successful in the space with multiple exits in franchising originally the co-founder of Complete Nutrition, the co-founder of Franchise Fastlane, which is the largest and most successful franchise sales organizations in in the space. And now currently co-founder of Franchise Sidekick, a really exciting way of doing franchise development in the space, which Ryan will touch on what they're doing there. Ryan, how are you today? I'm great, Dan. I'm excited to be on too. It's going to be fun. Yeah. Appreciate you doing this when we're right on the tail end of IFA. I know for myself, I'm excited for tomorrow to get a little space and some rest and relaxation. Well, you deserve it, man. I'll tell you what, you were all over the place at IFA. I saw you at a lot of events, taking notes. That's what I really appreciate about you. You are a lifelong learner and I can see that at the IFA. So take a break tomorrow. Yeah, that's the plan. I've got a day of nothing planned, actually. (laughs) Well, Really excited to get into this conversation, but for our listeners, maybe could you just share your journey, how you got into franchising, the companies you've built so far, and then a bit about Sidekick? Yeah. You know, I hear this all the time from people. You don't intend to get into franchising, you fall into it. So that's what happened for me out of college. I got a degree in radio, but I was going to spend a lot of time behind the microphone. Met a girl my senior year, decided I wasn't ready to move away and do the radio thing. So my best friend was working at a GNC store, franchise GNC store. Got a job there and just told myself I was going to do this until I get my real job, right? But like fate happens, it just turned into something I fell in love with. First nutrition and then franchising and franchising became the real passion. So we started buying underperforming franchise stores in the Midwest. I had some success. I got promoted to become the COO. We eventually turned that into the top five GNC franchise stores in the country. So as you can imagine, in a system that large, when you got the top five stores, it got a lot of attention. And it was really surrounded around this idea of exclusive product, right? Something that customers had to come back and get only from our stores. So that turned into a company called MDS Nutrition. Then my job became traveling around the country, helping GNC franchisees learn the product, learn how to manage customer interactions, local marketing. And that really is what spurred my passion to become a franchisee. I was on the road constantly doing it for other franchisees, many times feeling that like we all feel confident about ourselves. I felt like I was maybe doing it better than some of those franchisees. So I call that my burn the boats moment. There was no turning back for me. And I still remember the day I was in Houston, Texas, helping a franchisee that was golfing all day. And we had the best day he had ever had in the year. And I said, you know what? No longer am I going to do this for other folks. I'm going to do it for myself. So decided I was going to become a franchisee, applied to become a GNC franchisee. As fate would have it, they denied me. 
didn't have enough money at the time. But fortunately for me, there was a growing franchise concept called Anytime Fitness that approved me for multi-unit ownership. And that's how I jumped into becoming a franchisee for the first time. That's a cool story. So they declined you, not just because of lack of, at that time, lack of funds, and then it worked out because that allowed you to get into any time. Exactly. Yep. It worked out really well. It's probably a story for another day, but just the continued events, the sequence of events that turned me into a partner of the franchisee. And then, you know, ultimately we co-founded Complete Nutrition together. So it worked out exactly as the way it was supposed to. I was turned down from the first franchise I applied for too. It worked out because like you said, like the capital you did have was able to then apply to what led you down this path. So you go from any time into complete, walk us through that journey. What led you from there then to Fastlane? Yeah, well, I'll tell you a quick story because it was a fun one. I love that new franchise feeling. You know, it's like the new car smell. You know, you know what it is. And I remember when I was driving out to Fremont, Nebraska to open my first Anytime Fitness, it was in the middle of the winter. I was in a construction trailer that had no heat. So I was running portable heaters, using the porta potty that the contractors were using, you know, to build the building. And it was my favorite time. My favorite time of all entrepreneurship was when I left my job, even though I loved my job and became a franchisee of my own. I absolutely, one of my most fond memories. But about 30 days after doing the pre-sale, for the gym, I got a call from my previous boss, Corey, and he asked me to come back to NDS. I said, no, I want to be an entrepreneur. I've decided that's for me. And he said, that's what I'm talking about. Let's become partners. So we became partners in the nutrition company and then eventually co-founded Complete Nutrition. And, you know, Complete Nutrition, the idea of it was a more collaborative experience around somebody's health. At the time, GNC, Vitamin Shop, great brands, growing brands, but they were filled with thousands and thousands of products. It felt a little bit like a grocery store experience at times where people would come in, they'd buy their product and they'd walk out. We really wanted to create more of a educational experience, kind of a consulting experience. And we did that, right? Our average ticket was $110, $120 per customer and GNC's average ticket was 25 to 30, just to give an example of the different experiences. So we grew that to a couple of hundred locations, had the ups and downs that franchisors often have through that time, but ultimately had a private equity exit in December of 2015. The year before that, we had paused franchise development for a period of time because we grew so quickly. When we first opened as a franchise, Carrie Gilley had joined as our chief development officer and we had awarded over 200 locations, right? So we paused for a few years to get those open, get them operating, turn franchise development back on, didn't have the same level of success internally after she had left. And we decided to hire an FSO, franchise sales organization. So worked with that franchise sales organization for about a year before the private equity exit. And I learned the business. I just saw what was going on there, how it worked. And I thought after we had sold Complete Nutrition, I was thinking about what was next. And I got a really good piece of advice from a friend who said, do what you know, do it with people that you know, and do it where you feel like you can create something new or better, right? And what I knew was franchising. I knew the people in franchising. I understood franchise development and I thought it could be done better. And that's when Carrie wanted to get back into franchise development. So we had a cup of coffee and she was telling me her plans to get back into franchise development. I was telling her my plans around this FSO and ultimately decided to start Franchise Fastlane in 2017, really with three ideas in mind. One, we needed to define a really strong process for the next big thing, franchisors, right? We didn't want to represent just any franchisor. We really wanted to dig into the characteristics of a franchise brand that we felt was Jimmy John's before people knew it, Orange Theory before people knew it, right? How can we identify that? The second was how can we allow people to be the best at their individual function? I've talked to you about this in the past too. I am a big believer in being a rifle, not a shotgun, be great at one thing. We created an infrastructure that allowed us to do that. And third is we built it on top of technology, right? We made the job expand and we looked more professional because we build out really robust technology around the client experience or the candidate experience when looking at a franchise. So those three things worked well. And within three years, I think, give or take, we had turned it into the largest franchise sales organization in the country. Can you say all that again? I got to hear it again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of takeaways there. But, you know, what I've learned from you or by watching you in your career is that, first of all, you build teams of people, your companies and yourself making lasting impact, right? And so like, when I think about the journey you just explained, which was, you know, complete learning the process of development, going into Fastlane, you know, I joke around, there's this saying, the PayPal mafia, which is, if you look at many of the early teammates of PayPal, went on to start some of the biggest companies. I think the founder of LinkedIn, you have Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, of course. I think even founder of YouTube, I'm not sure, all come from PayPal. So in Silicon Valley, they call them the PayPal mafia. I call 
what you guys have is the complete nutrition mafia. Because there's so many people that came from there and then came into this world and you've made that lasting impact of bringing these people in. So what I've seen is you build companies where people can thrive, where they can win, where they can expand within your company. And then this idea that each business you do is a flywheel off of the previous experience. Like that was the advice you had given me. I remember one point months ago saying, man, like maybe I'm just going to go into a different industry and try something new. And I think your advice had been like, what you had just said, stick to what you know, find a way to do something that complements what you've already done. Exactly right. And I fell into it. It wasn't something that I knew early in my career. It was really, I remember the one day, the interaction, such an important day after the sale of Complete Nutrition, like you, I was exploring going into something else. I was antsy. I don't know why I was antsy. I was just antsy. Wanted to prove that I could do it again. And my friend really gave me that same piece of advice. Do what you know with people that you know, just in a way that you can do it better. And I think that's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever received. Absolutely. So taking that, you go from building Fastlane, you move on. I know you've told this story many times as you get on podcasts, we'll move into the meat of this, into culture and team building. But just to kind of get the audience up to speed after your exit from franchise Fastlane, how did Sidekick come about? Yeah, man, it was unplanned. I'll tell you what, it's funny how life throws these things at you. So, you know, we were having a lot of success at Fastlane with growing emerging brands into national brands, and they were having private equity come in and purchase. I think just in a little over a year, maybe 15 months, we had like six brands that had significant growth and significant exits. And I had met a gentleman named Patrick Gallagher from Boxwood, which is an investment banking firm that had helped many of those franchisors sell. And I had said, you know, can we meet? I want to better understand this. I want to understand what we can do to set these franchise brands up better. I want to understand why they're selling, what the private equity plans to do with it. And of course, I was thinking a little bit like, you know, Fastlane was a meaningful part of the growth. Is there a way that we maybe could participate? So we had those conversations, but he also started to dig in a little bit into Fastlane. Like all good investment bankers do, their key line is usually, hey, you mind if I take a look at your financials and give you a free valuation? Well, who doesn't want a free valuation, right? So he asked me about that. I said, sure, send it over to him. And he came back and I didn't know what a franchise sales organization value could be. There was no market set for what we had done. There was one that had sold previous to us, but they were also a franchisor. And he came back and he told me, and I was very pleasantly surprised. But at the same time, I had an allergic reaction to the idea of no longer being part of Franchise Fastlane. I loved it. I mean, I fell in love with the idea of helping people buy a franchise. It was profitable. You know, Carrie was running the day-to-day. I was working on new projects. So I really had no pain and I was loving it. And I said, no, I can't exit this industry. I have too many years in front of me to do it. But at the same time, you start to reflect a little bit in the next few days on, do you pass something like that up in a lifetime? It's a really challenging situation. And lucky for me, there was a small little division inside of Fastlane called My Fastlane Track that was working on driving organic leads. We didn't put a lot of attention into it. And I said, you know what? I've been thinking about it. And after a lot of conversations with my wife, with Carrie, with other folks, it was like, what should we do? And I went back and I said, the only way I would consider this is if I could buy MFT, My Fastlane Track, the organic program out of Fastlane look for a private equity partner on Fastlane and then continue in the industry. That was something I was really passionate about. I wanted to continue to help people find franchises. So after some conversations, they agreed. That's what we moved forward with, bought MFT out. And then in May of 2022, brought Southfield in as the investor into Fastlane. And at that time, I was reading a book called Building a Story Brand by Donald Miller, a great book. And in that book, it talks about how the company is not the hero. The client is the hero. The company is a trusted guide, right? So we have the back of the hero. We are a guide that has a proven process to get the hero to a desired outcome. So Tyler, my co-founder and I of Sidekick, we're sitting around uh, saying, well, who has the back of a hero? And we said, a sidekick. So we started kicking around the idea of franchise sidekick. We loved it. It was born. And now our vision is to help people reduce their risk when buying a franchise. And we think the brand just fits perfectly. You know, what excites me about that whole story is that if you think about what you said, it's all about for you, what I've learned is about mission, impact, and accomplishing, helping others achieve a goal, right? And so like for you, it didn't matter. Of course, the opportunity to exit Fastlane was life-changing, but without the ability to be able to carve a new path, it was like unacceptable for you, I'm sure. Like without the ability to do something else, you probably wouldn't have made that decision if I'm understanding correctly, you had the ability to do something else as soon as you left. That's 100% true. There's no way that I ever would have parted with Fastlane without the ability to stay in the industry and do something again. And it was unplanned, but you're right. I mean, it's my vision of my life now. I'd like to say, and I know it's a big vision, but 
I hope to someday help more people buy a franchise than anyone in history, right? And so if I can continue to do this through Sidekick for the next 30 years, bring my family into it someday, I think that vision can be practical. And what a great thing at the end of your life to say, look at all the people I help move into entrepreneurship. Outside of my family, my faith, entrepreneurship is the most important decision in my life. And it will create lasting impact, not only for me day to day, but also for my family day to day. And I want to help as many people as possible experience that. Yeah, I couldn't relate more. I mean, you know, allowing that mission to drive your feeling of whatever the lead was, it's still worth it, still given a professional process. We've got a core value at Sidekick called mission over commission. And it's challenging, right? What are the things that you believe in enough to lose a deal, right? What are the things you believe in enough that you know if you do it repeatedly over time, it will actually create a better experience, which creates a better company. It's so difficult in the moment. And, you know, I've been in my entrepreneurial journey, I've been in a place where the sale was extremely important. I'm very fortunate now, and I can't tell you how important it is that once you have that experience and you've had some level of success behind you, that you can really, really focus on what that mission is, right? I don't have to worry about every single sale anymore like I did when I was younger. So it's a great place to be in. You know, I like to say my first business was for profits. The next one was to prove that I could do it, right? I felt kind of in the first one that I was the mentee, not the mentor. The second time I wanted to prove I could do it. So profits, prove I could do it. And now this one is very much about purpose. They all had purpose involved, of course. I was very passionate about it. But purpose really drives the things that we do today. And I'll tell you, I know you want to talk a little bit about culture and recruiting. Purpose has always been a way to recruit people. But finally, I got the experience now where I really understand how to push into it. I really understand how to ingrain it into our day-to-day, have people feel good about what they're doing with their daily interactions. So purpose drives culture and recruiting more than anything else. Absolutely. Because people buy into that. Well, I guess moving into that topic of the conversation, the last thing I'll say about this, to me, I've always had this mindset that I had more money in the bank than I need. That's not the case. But like when I work, that's how I think, right? Like I try to think about the impact. I try to think about the business and I'm just having fun doing it. Like, you know, for me watching my previous company, watching that continue to succeed and seeing my previous teammates continue to thrive. You know, we have deep, deep relationships that are lifelong, right? Some of those people from my previous business and now in my current business, I hope they also will be lifelong. And what I realized at the IFA, which I think you've spoken about too, is I think that's two thirds of the trick to building a team. It's not a trick. It's genuinely caring about the people you work with, not just because they serve like a purpose in your business, but because they've actually become your true friend that you care about, whether they're with you or they're somewhere else later on. I guess to get into the meat of our topic, outside of purpose, like what's your number one way that you feel like building a team happens? Well, let me talk purpose just a little bit longer and then we'll talk about some of the other things. You know, purpose is, it's a compelling vision and it usually is done collaboratively. So with Sidekick and with Fastlane and with others, I don't typically like to create mission, vision, values until you've been operating the company for about a year right? Because you have an idea of who you want to be when you grow up. But until you actually start having interactions with the client, it's hard to best understand what is it exactly that they want. We all start these companies, well, not all. I mean, those of us that don't have McKinsey to do research for us, we all start these companies with the idea that we know what the customer wants. And then we actually start to get into the interactions and we find out, hey, we were probably 70, 80% right, but we got to adjust a little bit. So I'm a big believer in, you know, kind of sell the idea of the vision to the company, but don't create your mission, vision, values until let's say you've been operating for a year and include your team, right? So purpose isn't something that's solely the responsibility of the founder. Big chunk of it is. But if you can bring your people along into that, I find that they really buy into it. Our last strategy session, man, people were crying and hugging and everything else because they just so believe in what we're doing every day. It was great. You know, a couple other things that are really important to me, and I did not do it in my early companies, and I've done it lately, and it's helped so much, is I've talked to you a lot about a rifle versus a shotgun. Right. And so the illustration I like to use in my mind is imagine you got a bunch of people out there and they're shooting at targets. And most of the people are using shotguns and one person's using a rifle. And at the end of it, you know, they bring all the targets in and everybody's looking and nobody is going to say, Oh, look at all those shotguns that have hit the target lightly all over the place. Everybody's going to look at the person using the rifle and they're going to say, who's the person that hit that target really hard right in the middle? And that was it. That's what they're going to want to know because they made a long lasting just boom, an impression, right? And I think about that not only from the high level of my organizations, what's the one thing we're going to be the best in the world at, but then you got to start looking at it inside of your organization. Are you asking people inside your organization to be great at one thing or are you asking them to do many things? 
Sometimes when you start an organization, you got to ask them to do many things, but you should always be moving towards the idea of how do they become the best in the world at what they do. And so that's how we set up Fastlane. That's how we're setting up Sidekick. That's why Sidekick is a group of team members or employees as opposed to 1099s, because we get to go be a great at one single thing. And when people do that, they start to feel like A players. They start to feel amazing. They start to build core competencies and they want to continue to do those things over and over again if you do it well. So that's another thing that I do. I believe in that. I got a piece of advice a long time ago and it's stuck in my head. It's an acronym called AIR. You want people to feel appreciated, included, and respected, right? And so we spend a lot of time on one-on-one interactions. We spend a lot of time. Do you have what you need to do your job well? Do you feel good? Do you feel appreciated? Do you feel respected? Are we including you in decisions? And so just the AIR kind of acronym is something that's always been important for me. I can keep going if you want me to, but I'll pause just to see if you have any questions. It's interesting. Like what I've noticed with your people, like in the conversations we've had is you think about what they need now and then what they're going to need. As a leader, you're thinking about, hey, like this person I bring in, in a few years is going to maybe start to think this way. And in order to keep them happy, motivated and moving with me, I'm going to have to give them this in that time. Like you're thinking about where the person's going to grow into as well, it seems. Career path, outside of compensation, I believe career path is the most important thing to keep somebody in your organization. And if they're only staying for compensation, I actually believe that's a problem. And it's challenging. I'll tell you what, sometimes for You know, those individuals that are doing your sales or in leadership, it's fairly easy to determine what a career path is going to be. Other times, you know, the word technician is used sometimes for our frontline individuals, those that are doing repetitive work. It's harder sometimes to create a career path there, but it's really important to speak to them often, make sure that they understand where they're going in the organization and where the organization is going. So you're absolutely right. I probably spend too much time in the future when it comes to that topic. Well, let's talk about your hiring strategy. Because having a great culture once people are in is pivotal. But I noticed in, again, I use that complete nutrition mafia term in the sense of like all these amazing people that have come into franchising through you and through like, you know, your companies. And I noticed that your companies have tremendous retention. How are you interviewing, finding people? Are you taking them through a really long process? You know what I mean? How are you finding people that fit your culture so well? Yeah, you know, we're getting better. The one thing that really allowed us to find great people in the past was we've heard the saying, a reputation follows you forever. It's the one thing you can't avoid. And so you had mentioned Complete Nutrition. When we started Fastlane, those were the first people that I called. My favorite people inside of Complete Nutrition were the first people that I called and said, would you come join? And if they thought I was a real terrible person back then, they would have said, absolutely not. There's no way I'm following you. And there were a few people that just said, I'm happy with what I'm doing. I'm sorry, I can't do that right now, right? But there was enough people that I appreciated, included and respected back in the day. And when I called them to come become part of this, they said, let's give it a try, let's go. And so that is one of the biggest validators for me is when people that you previously work with are willing to do it again with you. And also the fact that they launch into other successful things. I mean, you know, it's like Bill Belichick in the NFL. How many head coaches have become head coaches off of his staff? You know, I love to think about some of the things that are happening in franchising right now with individuals that I've worked with in the past. And it doesn't have anything to do with me. It just happens to do with you find fantastic people to join the organization. You do the best you can with the limited time that you have with them and you try to give them a career path. And if they decide that they want to go do their own thing and launch into that, good for them, right? I mean, I can't just believe in entrepreneurship for myself. You got to believe it in it for everybody. Yeah. There's a saying that the people in your organization are your biggest asset. And I've tweaked that to like the idea that the people in your organization are your company's biggest asset is true, but they're not your asset. Meaning sometimes they're going to move on and they're going to go somewhere else or they're going to start their own business. And like the definition of a great leader is someone that created another leader. If you could take someone from, you know, an individual contributor to a leader and then they end up leaving to start their own organization, that's the greatest compliment of your leadership, right? I feel similar to you. Like, you know, I think about Tom Brady needed to play for another team to prove that it wasn't just the team. It was him that was, like you said, like it was mentor to mentee relationship, then on your own, proving to yourself, hey, I can do this on my own as well, right? And I think that's important for people sometimes. And when you're in the business we're in of inspiring people to become a business owner day in and day out, it's natural for your team to want to do that, (laughs) right? Like you're constantly telling people about the benefits of owning a business and then you have people in your team. Like what I found is that everyone in, in our team as a startup has to be an owner of the business or in the sense of a share in the results of the business, in the success profitability wise, in the success if we ever exit, in the success you know, of, of even maybe building systems that run 
without them being stuck in the day-to-day, right? Like my leadership team, the idea is everyone on the leadership team eventually can kind of move out of the day-to-day of their department. And so like, I feel like if you're giving your team the opportunity to grow within your company, that's so important. But like, what about the interview process, Ryan? Are you elongating that? Like, are you spending a lot of time with people? Is it all they're coming from referrals, have teammates that you know them well? Like, how are you really getting to know the people you bring in before you do? Yeah, great question. I'm going to talk about the interview process, but then I want to go back to what you just said about opportunities. I think that's a really important topic. The interview process now is different than it was with Fastlane. We were pretty fortunate at Fastlane that we would go to a lot of broker conferences and we would bring a ton of people. We'd all be wearing the t-shirts and we got a lot of people tapping us on the shoulder saying, we like what you're doing. You know, if there's ever an opening, let us know. And then we would just build a bench and we would know who was on our bench and what brands were coming in. And if it felt like that, the experience of that person matched the vision of the brand, we would call that person and say, are you still looking, right? And so it's usually best to hire people that are already employed. Those are the ones that are going to be best for your organization. Today, it's different. You know, when I started Sidekick, I really wanted to be sensitive about not seeming as if I was just going out there and cherry picking a bunch of people from the industry because, you know, I had previously been involved with Fastlane. And so this has been more about, again, referrals that had not previously been in the sales side. They've been in franchising, but not in the sales side. Or just even something that's kind of scary for me, but is just recruiting off of like a LinkedIn, right? Bringing people inside of an organization that I haven't previously worked with or had somebody that I respect tell me that that's a great person has been challenging. So we've had to beef up that interview process, right? We do we do things like video ask now. Mm-hmm. It's a simple little three videos that we ask them to do. They're each about a minute or a minute and a half long. And we think if somebody can't perform in three one and a half minute videos, how in the heck can we ever imagine that they're going to perform for hours every day trying to help people reduce their risk when buying a franchise, right? And then we look at these things and we hire for a couple of things. One, you hire a smile, right? You always want to work with people that are predominantly positive and happy. We try to find intentional. We try to find influential. We try to look for a great franchise story. We look for grit, right? The, the ability to be on the phone and having client meetings day after day, the ability to have perseverance. I mean, in this industry, there's a lot of people who want to be franchisees, but when they understand what it takes to do it, many of them say no, right? A heavy percentage of the people that we have built relationships with and worked for weeks on weeks eventually say, you know what? I've decided now is not the time. So you have to hire the people that have the characteristics and the personality to overcome that. So it's video ask. It's a series of interviews including the leadership of the organization every time, plus uh, the team leader, others that do what they do, peer groups will will get on there. We have a whole scoring system that we use based on our core values and the characteristics that we want of a person. And to find our last two advisors, we interviewed nearly 60 people, 60 people that we did live interviews with to find the last two advisors. So we take it very serious because it's a long-term decision. These people are going to be with us for many, many years. So if we got to spend a few months digging into the right people, so be it. If you're enjoying this episode, please click the subscribe button. And make sure to connect with the Franchise Founders Podcast on LinkedIn. What I found with what you're doing, like you've hired great people in the leadership roles and then they bring in people too, right? Like someone once told me if you were building like a technology product, don't hire engineers, hire the director of engineering and they'll bring in the engineers. And you've already built a great core team and I'm sure they end up pulling in people off of them. And that leads to like a flywheel, right? Recruiting is just like Fran Dev. It's a, it's a funnel, right? It's a creation of opportunities of people coming in. It's funny. We did the exact thing you just said. The head of our software development, our engineer, he brought in the other people on the team. You're exactly right. You hire a great leader and people want to follow him. For us, like at Franchise Playbook, as a franchisor, you know, I had, first thing I said was like, I have no idea what I'm doing to be a franchisor. Just honestly, I know I run a company, you know, I build culture, you know, Fran Dev don't know how to be a franchisor. And I'm learning every day, but need someone that has 10 years of mistakes, trial, error, wins, and, you know, coming in with that. So Zach Nolte and I partnered because he's like the absolute complement to my skill set and vice versa. And then with him, marketing came in, right? Because it's like, hey, you're the COO. You're going to be overseeing marketing. That hire should be you that makes it, not me, because they're going to report to you. And like, now we've kind of changed this direction. We're like, all right. And maybe this sounds like pretty basic, but like, if you're hiring a support for your role, then you should hire them. So now our CMO is tasked to hire his marketing coordinator, right? And kind of down the funnel. And that allows us to really create decentralized command because each person is hiring for their team. Now, friend dev, that's something I'm hiring because that's my team. But my friend dev, you know, leader is going to hire their team, not me, right? So, and that creates like, I feel like this balanced culture 
where the people reporting to each other like really have that synergy, kind of like a quarterback and a wide receiver. Yeah, it's buy-in. I mean, if you were to hire somebody and place them on somebody else's team, you're always going to have the challenge of buy-in. So one thing you really want to strongly consider in that interview process is how leadership buys into everybody on their team. So I very much agree. Yeah, then I also learned a lesson that it's very hard to put a leader above a ground level person, even at this tiny bit of time we've been in business. Like I had that struggle. I remember for me, like with exiting my previous business, I had a big struggle with maybe the idea of now being kind of lower on the totem pole, which I think also is, is can be great because you can learn a lot from other people. But I think as a culture, like it's very difficult to hire a manager. I'll give me an example. With Playbook, I had to find people that I thought could manage a team of a hundred, but were capable to do anything today. Meaning today we got to like do the most gritty little things, but you're also capable of running a whole team because we're not going to bring someone above the people that started with us. Does that make sense? Yeah, I've experienced that in my career. I've been promoted into areas where I was not previously at the level of the people that were now going to be reporting to me. And I've had to do that in my own organizations. I'll tell you, the leader's personality, their intentionality and in coming into the team and saying, here's my role. Here's how we're going to work together. Here's why I believe in you. Air, you know, appreciated, uh, included and respected. All of those things we've already talked about. It's just not our jobs as founders or just not our jobs when we go look for employees. It's every one of the leaders in the organization to understand these important characteristics of how to lead a team. And then they go and do it as well. If somebody comes in and says, look, I'm the superstar leader. I've done this before. You're going to do it my way. That usually doesn't work, right? You got to include your team. So I totally understand what you're saying. I want to go back to opportunities. I know you want to touch on that, but you're saying you successfully had a layer of leadership enter above initial team and, and it's pulled off because that leader had the ability to get the buy-in. Yep, exactly. And I've seen the opposite. I've seen leaders come in and try to do it and it didn't go well. I've mentioned this before. I am actually usually have a bit of an allergic reaction to bringing in a superstar leader, right? It's the Jim Collins book about, you know, he gave example after example on how it doesn't work, but, and I've tried it before. We've tried to bring in these people from outside. They've got great resumes. They've got great experience. We put them into major leadership roles and they just don't naturally fit with the culture. And if they don't take the time to fit with the culture and to understand what's important to the team, but instead they want to show how impressive they are or what they can do, and that's the priority over the team. Many times that is set up for failure. So I probably got more failures in that area than I have successes. And, and I've learned from those failures. Right. So with the team you currently have, the opportunities topic. This is so important to me. And uh, I think too many leaders, too many managers, they lead out of fear. Right. I forget who said this, but there's an old quote that says, there's a leader and an employee talking to each other. And, and the employee says, what if we train our people and they leave? And the leader says, what if we don't train them and they stay, right? So you can never manage out of fear. You just have to do your best to treat people with the idea of they are going to want more opportunities. So you can either fight it or you can figure out a way to go along with it, right? So we talked earlier about how I'm thinking about the future a lot. And our advisors specifically, our specialists and our advisors and just anybody on our team, guess what they're doing every day? They're talking to people about entrepreneurship, about business ownership, right? Most of them have been previous entrepreneurs. And so there's no doubt that they're going to want to be entrepreneurs or franchisees again in the future. And so I could have taken this approach that said, absolutely not. There's no opportunity to do that. You're going to be 100% focused on sidekick. That's it. And I promise you, I would have lost the people that just have the same, they're built just like you and me. Like you can't take the entrepreneur out of us, right? And so that would ultimately be a deterrent for guys like us and, and we would leave. So instead, we created this idea of living life on your own terms, not only for our clients, but for our own internal team. Here's a couple of examples. First is becoming a franchisee. I highly encourage everyone on our team to become a franchisee. So after they've been with us for a year, we contribute up to $50,000 towards them becoming a franchisee and we will do it every year for them. So if they want to buy a franchise this year, 50 grand towards it. If they want to buy a franchise next year, 50 grand towards it. We have a few criteria. One criteria is we don't want them to be the day-to-day -day leader, right? They have to find a manager. They have to have a partner, whatever it is. But now, not only do we give them this path to become a franchisee for the first time or again, we've just gave them a more compelling story with their clients. In fact, our next advisor is somebody that bought a franchise from us, right? We learned his story, used to be in franchising, went to corporate America, did it for a long time, wants to get back into franchising, fantastic guy, great experience. We hired him after he bought a Donut Envy franchise because we were so excited about him and his story, All right? So that's one thing we do. We encourage them to become franchisees. We had lots of people take advantage of this at Fastlane. We've had a few people take advantage of this already at Sidekick and there will be many more. 
Before you move on to the next thing, I just want to make sure I understand it properly. So you're saying that basically someone joins your team and after one year, they have the opportunity to purchase a franchise. You'll contribute up to $50,000 into that. All they have to do is provide the remainder of the capital and they need to put a leader or a manager in the business, obviously, so they could focus on the day-to-day job. And you'll do that every year if they want to buy multiple units or multiple brands. That's amazing. <laughs> and again, I mean, it's the idea of you could manage it out of fear. And, and some people might call me foolish. I'm, I'm not saying it's the perfect system. We've definitely had people that have got into franchising and, you know, the whole idea of putting a manager in place kind of fell through and now they're sprung into figuring out what's next. So it doesn't always work perfect. But I will tell you the juice is worth the squeeze. The benefit of it is more important than the other things you got to worry about because I can now get people in this organization who are enthusiastic, not only about helping other people, but about themselves becoming franchisees, right? And there's a real, I don't know what the word is. There's just a real belief in our vision. There's a real belief in, we believe in entrepreneurship. We believe franchising is one of the best ways to become entrepreneurs. And we want to give that not only to our clients, but to our own people that we see and care about the most every single day. So yes, that's exactly how it works. The other is for our advisors, right? I am a big believer in an organization has to be built around the idea of A players. A players, they help other people become A players. And so we have minimum criteria, right? Minimum requirements of our team that they have to achieve, especially on the advisor side. And then we also have goals. We have thresholds that we want them to achieve. And if they hit a certain threshold, our advisors become senior advisors. And the idea is, now, if you think about franchise consulting in general or being a broker, you know, the idea is that you work with clients sort of for the rest of your life if you want to earn a living, right? You have to do it every day working with clients. It doesn't matter if it's two years or 20 years in, it's you. Well, what we've done is we've created an organization where once you've proven that you are successful at it, you have the experience and you hit a certain threshold, you then become a senior advisor. And as a senior advisor, you start to put advisors on your team. You now become more of a leader than someone who's working with clients every day. And so what happens is I like to say it like this. In the beginning, this is clients and this is you know your management. In the beginning of working with us, you're working with clients all day, every day. And then you hit a threshold. And then all of a sudden, you put a couple of people on your team. So you're spending more time on management, less time with clients. And then you hit another threshold, more people on your team less time with clients. You'll always be working at some level with clients, but what we consider living life on your own terms is over time, that shifts. You're now spending more of your time in management, less of your time with clients, but the entire time, your earning potential goes up. And so would I rather become a consultant on my own that has to do it on my own forever? Or would I rather become someone who has the ability to grow into living life on my own terms where I'm more of a leader working more with my team and less with clients every day while still having the ability to earn a wonderful living. So that's the other thing that we've done. It's amazing. One of the things I've learned is that sometimes you see a great sales contributor and you think they'd be a great manager. And it turns out someone who's maybe not a great salesperson could be a great manager or a great manager is not a great salesperson, right? Like sometimes those skills don't correlate. My question is, do you have advisors that ever only want to focus on the friend dev side or do you find most want to eventually have that management side to the business? Yeah. You know, speaking from Fastlane's perspective, the answer was yes, absolutely. Not everybody wanted to be a VP or a leader, right? I mean, it was okay there. On the sidekick side, we're young enough now where we don't have anybody that has said, I don't have a desire to be a senior advisor, nor have I thought through, is that okay? Right? We want people that want to grow into that position. We want people that have the desire to help clients and help other advisors do what they do. So I haven't crossed that bridge yet, but I will tell you, I agree. I don't believe every advisor is always perfectly set up to be a leader of others. But then people say that often, and then you got to think about, well, what's the alternative? The alternative is they either never have a program that encourages people to become leaders, or you bring people from the outside in to become leaders. And I don't believe either of those are better. So then what do we have to do? We create these programs to take your advisors, turn them into senior advisors, and build training, build programs, build accountability systems around how they can become great leaders. And like all things, you're never going to hear me say that it works 100% of the time because there's nothing I do in my life that works 100% of the time. But if it can work the majority of the time, and then we can work through problems and set ourselves up for better success, I'll choose that. I couldn't agree with you more. One of my favorite entrepreneurial, you know, someone that creates some great mindset is Y Combinator's uh, Paul Graham. And he says that as a startup, you have to sometimes do things that are unsustainable or so like crazy, right? In the beginning, I'm not saying that what you just suggested is, what you said earlier really made me think about something. I've been in a unique position where hiring people is definitely a very thought through exercise. 
I obviously can't hire anyone that I used to work with. I would never hire anyone that like works for a friend, which this space is a lot of friends, right? So like, that's a big thing. Like, you know, are you out of the industry? Are you in the industry? I just have certain like rules that I follow just for my own self. And so when looking to hire, that became a pretty unique thing. And like, so I had this radical thought of doing like no non-compete kind of idea. And then I was like, you know what? That's a little extreme. And then I think I created a really solid non-compete type of agreement. Like give an example, one of our teammates, I was like, look, like if we're going to invest the time, the energy and all this to you, I'm totally fine with that. And if it doesn't work out and we have to let you go or something like you can work wherever you want. And I'm not going to stop you from working in this industry, but if we're going to put the time, money, resources, take all the risk, and then all of a sudden you're incredibly successful, I can't then have someone just swoop in and like, we're like an incubator for you. And we created a really fair agreement, which centered around like that idea and protecting us, protecting that person. But what we did in the company is we gave people upside in results that they could have. So I'll give you an example. Our marketing is centered around franchisees, AUV being, and this is nothing like new. I'm, I'm sure plenty of people do this, but like our marketing person is motivated to get AUV up for our franchisees. But our finance person that we're in the process of hiring, but we have the comp model set up for is actually compensated on profitability of franchisees. So now you've got this dichotomy, these two you know people pulling at each other, right? AUV is important, but profitability is more important. And so we've got someone motivated by profitability. We've got someone motivated by AUV. You've got someone motivated by development, right? Our friend dev is obviously motivated by units awarded. But I think all of this is like, there's no one ingredient. They're all ingredients to like, a central recipe. And if you make a mistake on even one ingredient, then your cake will be flat, you know? I love it. Yeah. I mean, you just talked about being a rifle versus a shotgun. Everybody's going to have their own thing that is their core competency. You know, one thing that helps me overcome if there is conflicts, and I totally agree sometimes one KPI or one core competency of a department is going to contrast the other, is a meeting cadence. I am 100% bought into the idea of any organization that I'm ever a leader of for the rest of my life, we'll have a daily meeting cadence. I've done it with and without, and I've just found it can be done very effectively. Now, I also recognize that it costs a lot to pull your entire team together every day for a period of time. You take their, their compensation, you multiply it, and it's going to be a significant investment at the end of the year. And I've figured out, for me anyway, it's worth it. Because in these times, now at Sidekick, we meet every single day. We talk about which franchise brands are performing best for clients. We talk about the client journey. We talk about other things that help our clients reduce their risk. We hold each other accountable. We lift each other up, right? There's all these amazing things that happen in the power of team. So even though others, certain individuals are going to have goals that aren't going to align perfectly, we don't have any kind of animosity or any of this feeling of, you know, yours is more important than mine or vice versa, because every single day we get to hear from each other on why that's important and, and what other departments are doing to lift them up. So meet and cadence. I think I first heard about it from uh, Scudamore at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. He was the first to kind of do that stand-up meeting and I've used it ever since and big, big fan. It's amazing. So as you're growing sidekick and we're talking about culture and, 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 uh, and recruiting, what are you most looking for as a company right now? Is it more advisors? Is it like, what, where are you guys uh, putting a lot of energy into currently? Yeah, two things really. Advisors, of course. We are very fortunate right now that our message is resonating with clients. You know, we are fanatical about the client journey, the ability to give them things that they couldn't get on their own to better understand a franchise opportunity to prepare them for success. And we are fortunate right now that marketing is almost turned off, right? I mean, we get to turn it on and turn it off because we're at capacity for our advisors. We have a core belief that an advisor can only work with about 30 clients effectively at a time, and they're all maxed out at that point. And so we turn marketing off often. So we need to find more advisors. We need to train them so we can continue to keep the momentum going on that. The next is great brands. You know, I am a huge believer in entrepreneurship. In fact, I've read statistics that say, you know, if you look at all the millionaires in America, 88% of them created some part of their wealth through business ownership, right? So business ownership is one of the greatest drivers of wealth in America. So what's the safest way to own a business? If we know we want to own a business and create wealth and our job is to reduce the risk, what's the safest way to do it? A lot of people would say, well, own a franchise, right? You're buying a system. I don't fully agree with that. I do believe franchising in general is somewhat safer than owning or starting your own business. But there's not a huge gap. But here's where I believe the real difference is, is if somebody can find what I call a 5% brand. So only 5% of franchise brands reach 100 units. 
right? When they reach 100 units, it's a lot of, and you've probably heard this too, a lot of people from the industry, they kind of talk about it. That's the tipping point. That's when national brand awareness is created. That's when you have a large community around you to support you. Technology, marketing, a group of people that will buy your business someday. All these amazing things happen when somebody hits that 100 unit mark. So if I just buy any old franchise that doesn't have the right leadership or plan in place to hit 100 units, I'm ultimately part of that organization for an extended period of time. And that's not better than starting my own business. What is better than starting my own business is finding those next big thing brands, those 5% brands. So we spend a significant amount of time with leaders that we believe in that have franchise brands who then dig in and try to understand, do we believe they are going to be a 5% brand? I forget if it was your post. I think it was the Wolf of Franchises post and maybe you reshare. I don't remember, but it was like how to succeed at owning a franchise. And then it was like a pie chart of pick the right brand. And then this little sliver of yellow that said, pick the right brand, but in yellow. (laughs) So it's all about picking that 5% brand that you fit into. But like now with the advisor side, so it sounds like your advisors are, get to capacity with about 30 candidates. And then obviously to continue to grow your vision of helping more people, it's more advisors. They have to have previously owned a franchise. Are they are they previous franchise uh, coaches? Are they, can they be out completely out of franchising? Like what does that criteria look like? No, we want a franchise story. So we've had people that have been franchisees. We have had people that have been part of corporate franchise or, you know, franchisor organizations, been part of franchisee organizations. So we definitely want them to have a core competency of franchising, right? The good news is, is we have a fantastic system built to educate on these 5% brands, the technology that's built to really take them through the process. And so it's not as if they need years and years of experience on client advising, right? We can teach that. We just want them to have a core competency and a story inside of franchising, and then we can teach the rest. And it's been highly effective so far. Franchising story. Could they have been like a GM of a multi-unit? Yeah, sure. Potentially. I mean, it's not the only criteria, right? So we want the franchise story, but then we also go look for the other characteristics that I had mentioned. But if somebody had been a GM for a franchisee, they had success, they understood the industry, that absolutely could be a starting point. Excellent. And then what about, you said brands, like I just looked at the stats. Franchise Founders has a very eclectic mix of listeners. We have franchisees, potential franchisees. We have founders of franchises, given the name we originally started with. And then we have franchise professionals, suppliers and vendors. And I'm still learning. What is the right word? Franchise suppliers is the word supplier or vendor or partner. I usually go with supplier. I like it. Yeah, supplier partner, right? Like Mm -hmm. vendor to me is someone that notoriously weren't treated as well. I think I see them as complete extensions of our business to supplier. But anyway, brands wise, I guess the criteria, they talk to someone on your team to figure out if they're fit for sidekick. Yeah. I mean, we look at many things, right? We look at uh, leadership is always number one, right? We want to understand who the leader behind the organization is. Do they really understand that business or do they really understand franchising or both, which is the best case scenario, right? What's the unique selling benefit? How many franchisees do they have? How long have they been doing it? What are franchisees saying, right? We dive into validation and we have many questions that we ask. Some of the most important being how long did it take to open? How long to profitability? Would you do it again? Would you recommend it to a friend or family member? You know, other things like profitability. You know, I inherently believe to be a top 5% brand at a minimum, you've got to have two to one sales to midpoint of your item seven. So if the midpoint of your item seven is 300 grand, we want to experience at least 600 grand on average in sales. And we want to see 15% net profits after paying a manager, right? So that's kind of, you know, 30% return on your borrowed and invested capital. It's much higher than just your invested capital. We want to see growing number of locations or royalties. We usually want to see multi-unit opportunities and other things. But, you know, we have a holistic criteria we look for because they're not always at that 100 unit mark. So we have to now collectively take our experience and say, what do we believe are the criteria to get there? Leadership is always number one. Unique selling benefit and profitability are close and franchisee satisfaction are close behind. And then do we believe they're going to get to 100? Because that's ultimately why our clients hire us. They don't hire us just to throw any franchise brand at them. They hire us to show them things that they can't get on their own. So we take that very seriously. If you're listening to this and you're a potential franchisee, one of the things that Ryan just said that actually recently he had shared with me that makes complete sense is looking at that two to one ratio, right? That's how you can figure out your return on investment, what it would look like if you had a manager in place and you know what you can pull down after paying a manager, paying royalties and how long it would take to make your money back. You know, Ryan, I was on the plane to IFA and I was watching Howard Schultz masterclass on just leadership. He's the obviously the CEO of Starbucks. 
He was talking about retail coffee locations or retail stores in general, right? And he was saying that as a principal, you know, he said, I, I know retail pretty well given, uh, you know, 30,000 Starbucks stores. He said that a good retail business, the sales will be about double the investment, right? So if the investment's half million, your sales will be a million in that retail business and 20% margin on that. And that's a good retail like as example, coffee shop in that Starbucks example. And I was very intrigued by that when I thought about, you know, mobile service or home service, how, you know, that ratio is actually like not even much, right? You think about $200,000 investment, you see some of what these home service businesses do in AUV on that investment. It's tremendously more. So I was excited when I heard that stat. And obviously there's great retail businesses, but my last question is, do you find you guys are focused on any industry in particular, or are you more so really pretty across the board as far as your inventory of brands? Yeah, it's not industry specific. And we can talk about why that's important at another time, because, you know, ultimately the economic climate is always going to change in America. During COVID, the types of franchise businesses that worked were very different than the ones that worked before that, right? And so we don't want to be locked into a specific industry because things will change. But we want to look for great business fundamentals. You know, traditionally, our investment is going to be under a million dollars, many times under a half million dollars, right? We want to see those strong returns. We love businesses that can get by with fewer employees, less risk, right? Less overhead, things of that nature. Not a criteria, but things we look for. But some industries have a more difficult time achieving that. For instance, a lot of people that are our franchise brokers will talk about, you don't want food. I don't necessarily believe that. I think food can work in the right environment, right? Is it a food truck or other things? And many times food is the right franchise for somebody that has an allergic reaction to sales. You know, most franchises require a level of sales. The ones that typically don't are those that clients walk into, point to a menu and say, I want those things. So if somebody gets into franchising and says, I don't want to sell, I want to leverage a national brand, I want to follow the plan and I want people to come in and point at a menu, Usually food, coffee, you know, drinks, things like that. Those are the types of brands that are going to fit that type of client. So again, we look for fantastic business fundamentals. We really drill into the six core categories for somebody when they're looking at a franchise, which is time, money, business preferences, probability of success, community involvement, and growth opportunities. Everybody is going to have different answers there, right? So we dig into those answers. We match it to the right franchise. We want it to be a 5% franchise that they can leverage because that's going to be less risky than opening their own business. And at the end of the day, we hope they uh, refer friends and family members back to us because they had a great experience. It's excellent. Well, thank you so much for, for joining the franchise founders today, Ryan. If someone wants to get in touch with you or your team, what's the best way? Yeah, FranchiseSidekick.com is a great way. Also, I am on LinkedIn often. So feel free to send me a LinkedIn message and I check it about every day. So I'll be sure to get back to you. I also want to say thanks to you, Dan. I just think you've called me a mentor often. I would say the same back to you. You inspire me at what you've worked through here recently, what you've created early in your career, what you're doing now, how you're pushing through, how you're passionate about helping people become franchisees. So we need more people like you. Oh, thank you, man. That means a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Franchise Founders Podcast. If you want our help with anything from buying a franchise to franchising your business to anything in between, shoot us an email at franchisefounders at gmail.com.